Usually when I cover a game like this, I try to do it in a somewhat linear format, but <clears throat> I'm going to kind of do that here, but I'm also probably going to bounce around a little bit with a few topics as we go. So here's the thing. I've already done a video on Earthbound. I did what was effectively a solo lore run, although a bit of an amateur lore run, when I did a then and now feature on this game. By the time this video goes live, I will have hoped to have done another video on this, or in that case that's actually going to be a stream. And I've decided after some careful thought, I'm going to leave a lot of the nitty-gritty details to the stream. The reason why is because it's a lot easier to point out the guy who mentions the possibility of the background of Gygus in Threed, or the, uh, the nature of exactly how Pokey's journey continues until we get to the darkness, and just all the tiny little details which I do know about, and of which there are many, from what I could literally show you on camera. So for this, you're getting what you usually get, a rumination. I've just beaten Earthbound, you've just beaten Earthbound, let's chat about it, right? First thing I want to comment on is how awesome the gameplay is. And I know that sounds like a weird thing, because it's basically Dragon Quest. But the game was surprisingly ahead of its time. I'm not actually 100% sure if it literally innovated in several ways or codified, actually. But it definitely did a lot of convenience features and general, what I would call good game design decisions, far earlier than other games of the time would do. Uh, just to name one example, the enemies are visible on the overworld, first point, so there's no real random encounters. Now, there is a little bit of a about that because they have the, the Ninja Gaiden rules as far as spawning and respawning, so you know, that's kind of a thing. However, they also have the front attack, back attack mechanic, so you can hit an enemy in the back and get a bonus round. The enemy can hit you in the back and get a bonus round, you know. They also initiated the... Uh, in, in If you go into a shop and it's like, hey, um, I'd like to buy this new bat, this new baseball bat. Okay. Well, this will increase your equipment by this. Do you want to equip it? And you can just say yes right there. Thanks. Do you want to sell your other equipment that you just unequipped to me right now immediately? Yes, Chukong. And then you can sell it right back. Now, you don't always want to do that, of course, but that's why it's an option. I know that sounds like a rather minor point, by the way, but that's the one that's always stuck in my head is the fact that you can equip, unequip, and sell in the vendor menu. As I've said many, 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 many times, Interface 101 the fewer clicks, the better. And there's a lot of that in this game. Did I mention you could play the game entirely left-handed, with only a couple of exceptions? Because the L button, and I believe the R button as well, serves as a shortcut A button. So, for one, th for example, you could walk up to a sign and hit A, and then hit check, or you could walk up to a sign and hit L, and then it just kind of smart checks. It's basically a hotkey. It's like, okay, I want to check or I want to talk to. Those are the two actions that it usually defaults to. And you can just move around with the left thing. Can't open up the menu that way, but it's, it's, it's surprising how ahead of its time it was in those things. But the one thing it did that was really unique, and I don't think I've ever seen another game do since then, is the rolling HP. Now, the rolling HP may seem like a gimmick, but at certain points, especially in the late game, it suddenly becomes an actual part of ca combat tactics. The way this works is anytime your HP is thing, the, the roller bars start rolling down at a fairly static rate. Now, if you manage to end the fight before they finish rolling down, then they will stop where they are. Now, if I'm not explaining myself, you have 500 HP, you take 
400 HP of damage. Cycle, 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 cycle. You win. Da -da 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 -da. And you won when you're at like 352 HP. So your HP stops there. Effectively, the rest of the damage didn't go through yet. This also means that this game is really good for low-level challenges, depending on how you set it up, especially if you abuse rock candy. Because this game allows you to effectively bank on that. Furthermore, if you get hit again while you're already dead, it doesn't cycle down faster, it's just still cycling down to zero. And the final point, and this is something I do all the time, even in a normal playthrough of this game, if you... the game has like a a stack, to use a Magic the Gathering terminology. And so, like, let's say your HP is ticking down, and it's at, like, 10. It's very close to the end, and you are in the middle of attacking an enemy. So the stack is, like, resolve animation, resolve text. The, the ticker will keep going down to zero, but then there's the, the it's actually a separate action for you to then be dead. And for the match to one. So if you stagger it just right, and it's not always going to work, I, I don't even actually know the specifics that go into it, what happens is you get hit, you're very low on health, you kill the enemy, you, your health actually goes to zero, but then because you won, the, the you won stack happens before the you're dead stack, what happens is the HP literally will cycle right back up to one, and you will survive the match, which is good because rising people is actually really irritating in this game. Just like it is in a Dragon Quest game, actually. This is basically an advanced Dragon Quest game with a interesting storytelling take. What's funny is I would actually say very strongly that Dragon Quest Effect is definitely on display here. And I want to tell you a bit of a story, if you don't mind. I'll tell the story on the stream, too, in more detail. But also I'll give you the truncated version. I originally, when I got this game, when I purchased this game, it was actually pretty rare for me to buy a game before I rented it. Because... There's a rental store literally in walking distance, and it used to be my job to go rent games to help tell my friends what was worth picking up or not. But Earthbound sold me before there, and there were three big reasons why. First, I was really starting to appreciate my love of RPGs, all thanks to Final Fantasy IV, which, as I've mentioned many times, introduced me to the idea that a game can actually have a really awesome story in addition to being fun to play. Yeah, I know, kind of late, but it was the first one that I encountered. The second thing... So I'm really into RPGs. It was Urban Fantasy, which, again, I'm pretty sure has been done prior to Earthbound, but it was my first exposure to it. I had never seen a RPG set in 1990s America, right? And I was just looking at it like... In fact, if I'm being completely honest, I'm not sure I've seen one since, unless we're counting Mother 3, which we're not, because that's set in... <laughs> land. <laughs> what? Nowhere Island, I mean, you know, implied to be a completely different planet than Earth, because I don't want to get into that. The point being, I, I've seen plenty of, like, urban fantasy things like cyberpunk, for example, or like, um, oh, I can't think of it now. The other one, I've played several of the games in the series. <sighs> I can't think of it. Whatever, the other one that I can't think of, but most of those are futuristic. Most of those are, like, sci-fi-y with fantasy elements. This is just, like, everyday modern, not future, not partial future, right now Earth, except it also happens to have monsters and magic and RPG stuff. And that was just, that just caught me in a way that very little else did, and arguably that's true to this very day. Which brings me to the third reason I was sold on this game. Humor. 
Now, this is actually funny. If I had actually seen the adverts running for Earthbound here in the States, there's a pretty good chance I would not have been as enthralled. You know why? I don't actually like crude humor. I never have. So the whole, this stinks, this is gross, you know, that whole thing, wouldn't have appealed to me. It would have appealed to, a, you know, the 90s aesthetic, you know, the 90s thing of gross humor, which was just everywhere at the time. But it wouldn't have gotten me. But I didn't see those adverts. I just saw some things in Nintendo Power, which were like, hey. So I just, I, I, I was like, mom, Lord, mom, can I please go buy this game? And she's like, because see, at the time, we didn't exactly have Amazon. No, we had Toys R Us, which was like an hour drive. <laughs> and she was like, I don't know, are you sold in this one? I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I am. And of course, you had to call ahead to make sure they have it in stock, and then you had to ask for them to reserve it, which they'll do for like one day. Remember how buying video games used to be before like EB or Electronics Boutique really started up? God, that was just weird back then. Especially since most game stores were, you know, like either Toys R Us or privately run you know, local things. But anyways, we went all the way down there, bought that sucker, and I pulled it open. Now, this is funny, because if you're noticing, I didn't mention the... the the walkthrough manual thing, the, the strategy guide that was baked in. I didn't even know that was a thing. I knew it was going to be 90 bucks because, because this was the 90s and that, you know, video games didn't have standardized prices. But when I, I, I actually ended up reading the thing a bit on the way home and I was telling it to mom and she started getting into it. For those of you not aware, Lore Mom has always been pretty, I don't want to say she's anti-video game, but she knows that if she got into video games, she'd really get into it, and she's never wanted to invest in that. So she's always kept a dividing wall between herself and video games, with very few exceptions. So this was one of the very few games that Mom and I could actually talk about, because she knew about it, and I was sharing it with her as we were going home. I was like, oh my god, and there's this, and there's this newspaper article about this thing. Oh my god, it's ridiculous. So I have some pretty fond memories of the game. I have to admit that worried me when I picked it back up, because I haven't actually played it in a while. Not since the then and now, actually, was the last time I played it. But see, here's the thing. When I played the then and now, I pretty reaffirmed for myself it was still a good game. And when I played it this time, yeah, no, this is a pretty damned good game. What is amusing to me is the miracle that is the localization of this game. This is the mid-90s, right? Most Japanese games that have story, a.k.a. anything with a substantial amount of text, still weren't very well localized. Excuse me, weren't even well translated. Never mind well localized over here in the States. Earthbound was a rare exception to that, being one of the earlier games that I know of that actually had a true localization and not merely just a translation that was kind of serviceable and you can kind of infer what's going on. The Final Fantasy series, for, re for re reference, would not hit this point, in my opinion, until Final Fantasy IX on the PS1 several years later. So, I'm down. I'm with it. But then we start playing the game proper. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> and I, I feel like I've talked about this a few times this year. It's hard for me to really ruminate on something that's basically a comedy. Things that would otherwise be considered bad storytelling or inconsistent things or this doesn't make senses are just kind of slight slid away because that's the joke. Like that's the whole point of it is that that that's the the intent of the author. It's really hard then to dissect a game like Earthbound, which is very clearly a parody and a joke and also very serious at the same exact time. Would I if I was to try and think about it, the, the nearest other game series that I would parallel it to is, and this is probably going to get a lot of people to look at me weird, 
Grand Theft Auto. No, seriously, think about it for a second, especially the old PS2 era ones. Um, from Grand Theft Auto 3, Vice City, and San Andreas. All three of those games are bonkers! If you actually sit and think about the world it's taking place in, it's amazing that it's even functional. It arguably doesn't make sense. It is so cynical and so off the walls that it's just, that can't possibly be. And yet all three of the games I just mentioned do have serious connotations and actual serious core plot going through them, especially San Andreas. So you can see how it's hard to analyze it from my usual perspective. I can't look at the world and say, well, this makes sense because of this, or if you look at this section over here, this clearly indicates this, because it doesn't. It doesn't clearly indicate anything. So instead, I'm going to look at things with the camera zoomed out a little more than my usual approach. So first of all, let me just go ahead and toss out a bit of a disclaimer before we really jump into this. A lot of this game, even now, is still in the realm of theory. This goes true for the whole franchise, actually. While Itoi himself has actually mentioned several, confirmed or denied several theories over the years, and Mother 3 did add a little bit to the overall investment of the franchise, there are still bits and pieces here and there which they could be jokes, they could be references, they could be direct bits of continuity, we don't actually know. And it's arguable that, basically, it's possible that Mother, that is to say Mother Zero or Earthbound Zero, whatever you want to call it, isn't actually connected to the rest of the games other than the presence of Geeg himself. By the way, quick aside, I know it's pronounced Geeg. I know that's the correct pronunciation, and that's why I said it that way just now. From now on, I'm going to call him Gygus, okay? <laughs> Moving on. Yes, I also know that he's supposed to be pronounced Gigas. I don't care. So... Geeg, back in Mother 1, is, and, and we do know this, supposed to be Gygus in Mother 2, Earthbound. But by all accounts, that is the only really parallel. The only other thing is the very existence of PSI. Now, I could theorize from a world-building perspective that thanks to the efforts of, I can't remember his name, your dad in Mother 1, that thanks to his efforts, the PSI gene and technology started spreading throughout humanity to the point where it started to become a thing. That this alien influence started to allow people like Paula to be born. Or Ness. Or Pooh, for that matter. And, well, as I think I've mentioned before, there are several other examples of this, uh, mostly in the realm of individuals, or monsters, or creatures, or backstory, or the fact that there's little midget men who exist in a hole that leads down to the underground where there's dinosaurs. I mean, again, it's hard to take some of this seriously. And so you can see why I'm having such a hard time theory crafting. But with the idea that this is a direct sequel to Mother 1, well, let's just go ahead and knock out the one big one. Do I think Andonuts is uh, Lloyd from the first game? The biggest problem with that theory, by far, is the time scale, which just doesn't fit. If you stretch it as far as it can be stretched, it barely fits. If, if, you, if you tilt your hat a little bit. If you assume, uh, what is it, like 81 to 99, I think, is, the hard, is, is how far you have to stretch that to make that work, or something like that. Which could work. But ultimately, I have to admit that I do think they're the same person. And the main reason why is because of the thematic significance it adds to Lloyd as a character across all three games, and the fact that he serves as another recurring element. You guys know I like continuity in general. And Lord knows Andonuts has a fairly strong role in both the second and third games. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, aren't I? I'm mentioning all of this because it's hard to talk about Earthbound in a vacuum, 
but it is also hard to talk about Earthbound with regards to the former and previous game, or former and successive games, because Mother Three is a very, very clear sequel to Earthbound, even though it is an indirect sequel. Earthbound, not so much to Mother One. So, why are things this way? Well, I'll kind of circle back around to that point toward the end, because I want to talk about Gygus basically last. What I want to talk about first is I love how most typical stories follow a standard process of escalation. I'm about to spoil Final Fantasy IV on the off chance anybody hasn't played Final Fantasy IV. This is your big warning. But I, I want to do this because, in my opinion, this is one of the best examples of this. So you start off, spoiler warning, you start off as a captain of an airship crew. And then you end up fighting against your own nation. And then you end up fighting against an evil overlord. And then you end up fighting the elemental personifications of evil, or the evil personifications of elements, depending on how you want to think of that. Then you end up going un into the crust of the earth, finding the dwarves, finding out that there's a space people, going to the moon, and defeating an alien entity. Now... <laughs> I swear it makes sense in context, but you can feel the escalation. Even Cecil, who, who was the captain in question, he actually started relatively high tier on the scale. The, now, the relevance to Earthbound is this follows a fairly logical progression, too. But the problem is it does a weird kind of spiky progression. Because what it does is it starts off with you being a kid in your jammers who decides to go investigate a meteor thing. and no, that's weird. Okay, not a big deal. Whatever, I suppose. Oh, oh, God, Picky's missing? Oh, yeah, sure, no problem, I'll help you out, Pokey. No problem, I'm your only friend, after all. Quick aside, I'm actually not going to talk about Pokey that much in this game. The main reason why is most of his characterization is actually in the sequel. So, I'll talk about him, but not that much. So, as Pokey's only friend, and the only person he can turn to... And there's no denying that he thought it was his friend, Mother 3 reference. And still, anyways, anyways, we're going to go ahead. God, I've already just spoiled Mother 3. I just realized that. You see, you see the problem I'm having here? We go find Picky, and the first thing that happens is we have a visitor from the future. Now, this is interesting in its own right, because as weird as this may sound, this is the one part of time travel that doesn't really line up the way it probably should. Every other instance of time travel, travel other than the beginning of the game could easily slide in as type 1 time travel, which is everything that has happened will always happen. <sighs> Think of it this way. Um, here, give me one moment. Noises, noises. Here's the timeline, right? So the idea is Gygus is back here. He has traveled back to the past to use this as his base of operations. And he is using a beacon as an antenna to spread basically just himself. The very nature of what he is at this point in time is effectively evil corruption. So, and that of course be the Mani Mani statue, which if you're paying attention shows up very early in the game, right after the meteor hits. <laughs> I've actually heard a lot of theories that the Mani Mani statue actually came in on the meteor, or that the meteor impact itself was used as the... Uh, Let's call it the target. The aiming reticule was aimed at the meteor landing spot so they can know when to send the Mani Mani statue into the future. Anyways, so Mani Mani's here. Gygus is back here in the past. So as he's sending his influence forward, and as the timeline... I know this is kind of hard to do, but as the timeline continues forward, the spokes between these two relative points stay the same, as I'm trying to demonstrate to you as we keep moving on the timeline. 
the relative distance, temporally speaking, between them stays the same, right? Now, this again makes sense if we think of this from a type 1 time travel theory, if this is all one. The problem is, if this is type 1 time travel, the only way this makes sense is if Buzz Buzz is lying. Because he says he comes from over here, over here, let's say, where everything is devastation, all is devastation. Gygus has won, the world is ruined, the galaxy is, is, is in tatters. So there's only a couple ways to reconcile this. Either he's telling the truth and we didn't save the world, so everything's going to be doomed in the future. Don't care for that one, I'll admit. Or he's lying, which, as weird as this may sound, is actually a pretty practical theory. And in fact, to be completely honest, that is actually my theory, is that he is lying. Um, because my theory is that Buzz Buzz is basically from the alien world. He's one of them basically. And he has come over specifically because he is someone who doesn't like what Gygus is doing and doesn't want it to continue. So, you know, to, to me that makes a lot more sense. I'm not sure why he wouldn't just say that. But I suppose you could argue that if he tells you the world will be destroyed, I've already seen it, unless you help me, it might add a little more weight to his argument. The third option is we have either inconsistent time travel, which is actually probably the most likely answer, or we have multiple types of time travel going on, which is, eh, I don't buy that. And yes, I know that what your guys are going to say, you're going to say, well, it's just type 3 time travel. After all, after we save the world, we create another timeline, and Andonuts doesn't exactly take it very well. <clears throat> I'm sure it'll be fine. That is possible. If it's type 3 time travel, all these discussions go out the window, though, and I have nothing to talk about, so I guess I could move on. But my point is, to me, I think it makes more sense that Buzz Buzz is literally just one of the aliens who has been, who's a rebel, who is trying to stop Gygus and comes after us to help us to get started on our path, because he knows what the Apple of Enlightenment's already said. Remember, that's a relevant point that's not talked about as much as it should be. Although in the original Japanese translation, we do know the Apple of Enlightenment is in fact a machine, and in the possession of Geeg. So, you know. Anywho, moving on. Buzz Buzz helps us, gets us... It's a nice bit of gameplay and story integration because he serves as a nice tutorial for a lot of the ways the gameplay will work on the concepts of shields and using PSI effects and blah, 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 blah. So we fight our first boss, which it's probably possible to lose to. I've never actually seen that, and I'm not even sure how that could theoretically happen. And then they pull a trick, and it comes daytime, and we start going through on it proper. And now, having gone through the tutorial, the game kind of follows a bit of a pattern. So here's the town, and you have to go through the town and find out what's bugging the town. There's some problem here. In the first town's case, it's the sharks. So we need to figure out how to resolve that, and we need to do that as a way of progressing forward to get to the your spot in order to connect with the Earth, and in so doing, receive the power and move on. Generally speaking, this pattern will also follow an idea of us getting a new party member, which happens with Paula in Tucson. Yes, by the way, Onet, Tucson, Threed, Foreside. I kind of wish real-life cities followed that pattern, but they'd probably run out after 736 sun. Anyways, <clears throat> like after a while, it probably loses its, 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 its appeal. 
All of the Onet adventures, I actually don't have much to say about them in specific because there's so many details about Onet that are awesome and very well designed and amazing. It's where we find out that you should talk to NPCs multiple times because they'll say different things. It's when we find out the nature of the different types of enemies we'll be fighting. It's when uh, we learn how to buy items, equip items, loot what chests are, how dungeons work. All of the usual stuff that you'd expect from a first first chapter adventure. Going down to Tucson, well, that leads to some interesting stuff. By the way, on the way to Tucson, you're very likely to get mushroomed, which is also a bit of tutorialization. But again, I'll talk more about that during the stream. For here, what I want to talk about is Paula, because Paula is an interesting example. See, Paula is actually the problem of Tucson, the fact that she and several others are missing. And it's like, well, okay, how do we deal with that? Well, we could go talk to the local crime lord. That's a good idea. Now, what's funny is Everdread is apparently supposed to be pretty horrible in, in most variances of him, which I find interesting because, by all accounts, he never does anything actually bad other than try to kill us. And I know that sounds weird, but my point is he is a universally positive assistant to the party, so... It's okay, he dies. Anyway, <clears throat> that leads us to... Uh, our first interaction with Apple Kid, who's going to be a recurring character, and of course takes us to through the valley to the Happy Happy Village. Now, I want to point out, I'm stopping here for a moment to mention that so far the game is still relatively... Uh, what's the word I want to use? Grounded. It's still relatively grounded. I mean, yeah, we've fought policemen, but I mean, who hasn't, right? Um, <laughs> and we fought monsters and, you know, a giant ant and all that, but... It's still all relatively low tier. Once we get to the Happy Happy Village and we start finding out about things, this is the second reference to the Mani Mani statue, which, again, as I mentioned for earlier, is an antenna for Gygas to you know, emit himself and the energies that he produces. I've often theorized that the Devil's Machine's secondary purpose is specifically to channel Gygas into the Mani Mani. Just a theory I've always had. So... Um, as he's going, uh, as we're going through happy, the happy, happy village, and as we're doing our stuff, we encounter Pokey again. Now, there's a scene which I have heard multiple interpretations and translations of. When I stream it, I'm going to go ahead and pull out the book, because I do actually own Legends of Localization Earthbound, which I highly recommend, by the way. And even if you don't want to buy it, look up Legends of Localization uh, just online. He's got a whole site with tons of fascinating info about Earthbound, uh, Final Fantasy IV, and Zelda One are the three big ones he has as of as of this moment. Uh, I think he's currently working on Psychedensetsu One as another one. Anyways, so oh god, what's his name? I can't think of his name. Pokey. Pokey is there. Sorry, I'm really tired. Pokey is there, and he's just he's he's an important member of the new cult. Well, that's weird. Why is okay? I mean, I thought he was just kind of the jerk kid from next door, but all right. He ends up leaving after begging for our forgiveness and then changing his mind, or, in the Japanese version, wondering why we don't answer and then leaving out of out of a peak, so whatever. Although, again, I've heard multiple versions of that, and I'll talk about it when we get to the stream. What's relevant is we get the Franklin badge, which, unlike the third game, isn't super relevant. It's just another defensive item. And we get Paula. Now, what's interesting about this, and I didn't know this for the longest time, you don't have to go to the dungeon that's right next to there, like right then. 
you can, and you are supposed to. It is designed for you to immediately go from defeating Carpenter to defeating the Trillinich Sprout, or whatever it is. You don't have to. You just leave. <laughs> it's just interesting to think about, because there's what the game checks for is when you have checked all of the your spots. Whenever you get the final spot, whatever that spot is, that's when you actually go to Magicant and start the end games flags. So you can do them completely out of order. Just interesting. I, I didn't actually know that until I started watching speedruns of the game. Anywho, <clears throat> we get Paula. Now Paula is interesting because she's the mage, but I, I don't, I'm trying to think how to explain this. In many, like I said before, this is in many ways structured like a Dragon Quest game. So the main character is a caster who is a healer, who is a buffer, who is a melee, who is a tank. He is the catch-all, just like your typical Dragon Quest main character. As a consequence, while he is able to solo many things, he's not really all that good at anything. Unless you, you set him up just so, which you can obviously do. Paula, by contrast, has a decent mana tank and very powerful offensive spells, and that's kind of it. That's all she really has going for her. But, because of her status as the nuker, well, as soon as she joins the party, all of a sudden the combat starts to go a lot more smoothly, at least for me. More to the point, her status as a mage means her PSI power is actually developed more than ours is, which makes sense. As I said before, I've always had the theory that thanks to our dad's influences, or it wasn't our dad, it was our grandfather, wasn't it? You know who I'm talking about. The guy. The guy from Earthbound 1. I'm going to have to look up his name. Oh my god. I don't even have a window open right now. Give me one second. <laughs> Let's see if I could find his name. Just give me one second, please. Uh, George! There we go. See, I knew I could find it. <clears throat> I know it was a banal name, too. Because I, I've always theorized that because of the influences of George and his spreading the PSI gene or tech or magic, however you want to think of it, to the earth, this is why people like Paula manifest. It also, in typical X-Men fashion, means some people manifest more than others. This is how Paula tends to be arguably the strongest member of the party, at least in sheer potential. Ignoring the obvious fact that she can... whatever's in her way... She also can talk to each other just in her head, even if she's never met that person before. That is very impressive. And if you actually sit back and think about it, it's kind of terrifying. This is someone who is a straight-up Jean Grey, except more so. Like, this is Phoenix-level, well, sub-Phoenix-level Jean Grey we're talking about here. Anyways, Paula joins the party. You notice I'm not talking about the characters all that much? The characters have a weird tendency to only get characterization when they're not in the party. <laughs> like, as soon as Paula joins, she has, like, no... Like, there's two, I think, additional scenes of dialogue for her, and that's kind of it. One is when she's kidnapped, so she's out of the party. And one is when we're captured and she's talking to Jeff. Which, speaking of which, that leads us to Threed. Now, the game does a lot of guided storytelling. There's a very natural flow to it, which is one of the aspects I like about it gameplay design-wise. As I mentioned before, it, there's plenty of times when you can sequence break or do things out of order, 
just because you decide to explore or whatever. Be, and it never really occurred to me, even as a kid, to try and do some of these things, partially because I have a strategy guide, but also because the natural flow of the game follows a very distinct path. Like, I, if I could visually track it, like Onet over to Tucson, over to the Happy Happy, and then back down over to Threed, which goes up to Foreside. Actually, no, it goes up to the desert, and then it goes on to Foreside. You know, it's a very distinct pattern to it. But if, on the off chance, you decided to try and leave... Uh, Tucson on your own to go to Threed, either by foot or by bus, guess what sucks to be you, you can't do it. Which leads to the natural dilemma of how do we get there and the place of the Runaway Five, which are totally not the Blues Brothers, please don't sue us. Shortly after we get to Threed, though, Threed's actually one of my favorite sections of the game, as weird as that may sound. And it is kind of weird because there are some... Gameplay-wise, this is when the difficulty really starts to spike up. They know you have two party members, and they assume that they are geared and ready to go. And there's enemy spawns in town areas, which may or may not spawn. And the enemies start to lean very heavily on status effects at this point in time. So, hope you're paying attention! But three is also when we start to get a little bit of backstory on what the hell's actually going on. The idea of Master Peak. <laughs> Sorry. Master Barch, Belf. I, I forget which one this one is, actually, because he changes his name later. Isn't it incredibly masculine, Tom, the throw? Anyways, Master Gross is here. This is when we meet the Saturns, and this is when we reference Gygus. If you're paying attention, that does pretty much mean that a lot of the specific foreshadowing for what we're going to have is the final story, and the main plot is established here. The only exception to that is the Mani Mani statue, which, as I, as I pointed out, was established way back before we even properly entered Onet. Quick aside, I haven't talked about the music all that much. And I mention it here because Three is actually one of my favorite songs in the game. Just like, do, 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 do. You know, that whole thing. There's a few songs I like in this game, but for the most part, the music's either a little bit too weird for me or mostly atmospheric, so I'm not really paying that much attention to it. Either way, I do like the Three music. But I point it out because there's something they did, and I can't believe I didn't notice this my first time playing it. I feel so stupid. Anytime a story-significant event happens, there's this little do-do-do-do-do that plays in the background to kind of call your attention to it. For the longest time, I just assumed that was just part of the music or part of the background. It didn't even occur to me there was an event anyways. Now that we're done making fun of how stupid I am, first thing we do is, okay, three is when the story starts to... Go a little bit off the rails. I mentioned how both Onet and Tucson are very down-to-earth. Threed is not. <laughs> Threed is a town perpetually dark being invaded by zombies. Now, there aren't the zombies aren't dead people. They're just zombies who can talk and interact with us. Hi, what's up? Don't go to heaven. I know that's actually someone later. This is also a town when we start to encounter things like a, 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 a tent a circus tent that attacks us. Um, and, as I mentioned earlier, the Mr. Saturns, which are... Uh... Anyways, <clears throat> I don't know what to call them. They're a weird combination of gnomes and elves as far as overall cultural approach. And, of course, we fight a giant pile of puke as our main enemies. That's nice. And then I think this is actually when we go up to the Trillionage Sprout. I forget what the previous enemy was. It doesn't matter. Each of the major bosses of the Your Places are actually completely irrelevant. That's one of the weird things about this game, and I've always been weirded out by that. They're just 
monsters that have claimed the space and have grown more powerful as a consequence of it. That's it. There's nothing else to it. There's there's no big story significance. They're not part of the squad like the Turks or you know the bodyguards or the Mystic Trio or whatever. No, they're just they're just the boss. Nothing relevant to them at all, other than the fact that they happen to be in your way. There's also when we get our first coffee trip. I I don't actually have much to say about the coffee thing. I'll, it weirded the hell out of me when I first played this game. And given everything that three does to kind of change the tone of the game and kind of push it into the weird. I have to admit, I actually almost put the game down after the three section. Not because it was creepy, not because it was weird, or not because it was creepy, not it was terrifying, but because it was weird. It's okay, I stuck with it though. You know why? Because Jeff is awesome. Jeff's actually one of my favorite characters in this game. And he's definitely my favorite party member. Ignoring the fact that he is easily the, the best party member because he has so many gadgets for everything, uh, like the slime, uh, what is it, the slime generator machine, which works on virtually anything in the game, or the neuralizer, which always gets rid of shield without fail, or of course, the most important point of all, the bottle rockets, which is the most DPS you can do, uh, in, in the game, I believe. I could be wrong about that, but my strategy for most bosses, basically four set onwards, is bottle rocket, bottle rocket, bottle rocket. But I also kind of like Jeff because he's strangely honest for someone who is supposed to be a stereotypical geek. And his song is my favorite part of the Dwayne and Brando bit. But anyways, <clears throat> I, you notice I didn't mention much about Winters. Um, I don't have much to say about Winters. I mean, we have the Tessie watching. We have Tony, who's awesome. Uh, we have Brick Road, who's weird. You'll notice again, the weird theme just kind of keeps coming in Threed. This is actually interesting in its own right, because as soon as we leave Threed, we have what's basically a very brief foray into additional weird as we cross the desert. There's a lot of stuff to do in the desert that is 100% optional, because all you have to do is cross the desert. Once you're on the other side, you're done. You can go on to Foresight. Foresight brings things all the way back down to the mundane level, in a good way. It's it's like, hey, we're back into the city, and it makes sense. I mean, Threed was this big, you know, haunted town. Now we're in the big city, and we're talking, and there's business, and, you know, there's this local gang wars that's going on. Not gang wars, the, the mafia thing going on with Mr. Monotoly and just all this fun stuff, right? And then Paula gets kidnapped. Can I just say that the first time I played this game, that sucked. Because she was my DPS the first time through. In fact, the reason I discovered how effective bottle rockets are is because I was trying to figure out what the hell to do in the absence of Paula. Lots of cool stuff happens in Foresight. I'm skipping over the details because the relevant point is it brings the, the narrative all the way back down to something understandable right up until you hit Moonside. <laughs> what is it? Yeklamene and Utsmide or something like that? I forget the exact way to pronounce it, but yeah. Moonside. Yay. Now, this is interesting for several reasons. First of all, we see that the Mani Mani statue is here. We, we understand that it has been directly leaving visions and messages to Monodoli and draining his essence. Well, not draining, but basically turning him into a frail old man, which is funny because the same thing happens to Pokey later. We also see that Pokey is officially on Team Gygus at this point, and he stopped any pretense of being, you know, any kind of our friend. In fact, he actually acts as if he is Monodoli's superior which is interesting. And he can fly a helicopter. Don't question it. Don't question it. This is also when we destroy the Mani Mani statue. Now that, to me, is actually very interesting. Because 
it could be argued, based on the overall narrative of the game, that that was the moment in which we started to really win. You'll notice that up until now it's all been towns. Onet, Tucson, Threeson, Foresight. And each one of these has been a place of um, the world, the everyday life, you know, the, your neighborhood kind of a thing being negatively influenced by the power of Gygus. Now we'll still see enemies in the future, but not as many in the urban setting. Think about the areas we go to next. We have Dalam, we have uh, uh, Summers, excuse me, which is a town, then Scaraba, which is mostly a desert, then the Deep Darkness, then the Underground, and the Fire Cave, and then the Cave of the Past, not counting Onet. If you think about it for a second, you can kind of see how, from this point on, the urban side of things starts to melt away, and instead we go to what is more traditionally an adventure. This is also when we start to bounce around a little bit, but it's okay, they give us the teleport. I have to share something as a quick anecdote. One of my best friends is named Third, or more accurately, his moniker is Third, because it was the third name that he, that was, uh, because the first two names he tried weren't available, so he just tried the third name in, a, in a frustration, and Third was available. So he's Third. You've probably heard me talk about him, you've probably seen him, because he's he streams with me every Thursday evening. Third played Earthbound with me. <laughs> and I know, that's such a stupid thing to comment on, but I found it so funny, and I still find it funny to this day, when he hit the section of the desert, and he's just like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. <laughs> From this point on, the adventure takes a far more JRPG tone. We hit Summers, we get our first phone call to you, the player. Oh, excuse me, what's your name? Lore. Okay, are you sure? Yes. Okay, just wanted to check. Thanks. There's a fourth wall for a reason, guys. So, I don't actually have much to say about that section, or the Dalam section. Uh, the Dalam section is appropriately horrifying. I will freely admit the first time I played the Dalam section, I failed it. I failed the test. Because, of course I freaking did. In fact, I failed the test right at the beginning. Right at the beginning, hey, your master wants to see you. Oh, okay. So I just got up. Walked all the way back up the town, talked to the master who said nothing new, and I was like, well, that's weird. Alright, whatever. Went back. Hey, your monster wants to see you. Okay. <laughs> that was the only time it caught me. After that, I was like, alright, sure. I'll just endure. I do kind of like the idea, if you talk to a lot of the NPCs, Pooh is apparently very much a... Uh, how do I put this as nicely as possible? A playboy. And just living the high life as as royalty up until his studies took took demand. Now, okay, that makes sense, and I'm with the general trope. What I want to know is why did he have to study so hard just to be part of the party? I, I, what I'm trying to say here is Pooh is the weakest member of the party by far, uh, both narratively and in terms of gameplay. But I'm speaking mostly in terms of gameplay. His spells aren't actually all that useful other than the debuff side of them. I mean, Starstorm, Star or, Star, I think it's Starstorm, Omega, is practically worthless by the time you actually get it. Then there's also the fact that he doesn't hit all that hard, and he doesn't have that much defenses, and he just doesn't have anything really going for him, unless you bother to get his gear. By the way, I just want this on record, because if it happens during the stream, I'm going to laugh. To this day, I have never gotten the Sword of Kings. Not once. I have tried. There are several times I have sat down and tried to get that sword. I have never gotten it. My friend Pax, who I've mentioned many, many times, 
This is his favorite game of all time. He has replayed this game as often as I have replayed FF6. He has never gotten the Sword of Kings. How about you guys? Anyone else that got that? Anyways. <clears throat> so. We get Pooh. You know. We find out about the great cosmic horror and there's destiny and blah, blah, blah. And we end up going to, uh, through the rest of summers, we, inter- <laughs> we bribe our way through. That's always fun. Learn about the pyramid, take the trip, fight a relatively easy boss fight. And then we're in... See, the problem is, you notice I'm just kind of racing through this section. If I were to diagnose the game, to, uh, to debate the game, I would say the first half of the game, which basically terminates when you leave Foresight, is very dense. There's a lot going on and a lot of cool stuff, both in terms of gameplay and story. The moment you leave Foresight, it feels a lot more stretched out. For example, how much of story significance happens in the entire Scaraba section? I'll just go ahead and tell you the only thing that happens of story significance is we find out that the ancient people in the pyramids had some inkling of what was going on with Gygas being in the past and left a message for us for the future. And that's basically it. I mean, you could say Pooh shows back up and there's the brick road thing, but that is kind of it. There's nothing else. And that's for an entire section, which is a town, an overworld area, and a dungeon. Excuse me, two dungeons. Oh, yeah, I should probably mention that as much as I like the Brick Road concept, I really hate the music in there. I know that's the point. I don't care. I hate that song. I like to think that Brick Road eventually was freed from the trees, personally. So we head down to the Deep Darkness, which is, once again, there's not a lot going on there, although we do see a crashed helicopter. Huh. Anyways... After, you know, making our way through there, which is, that can be a fun section. It's also a good section for farming truffles if you really feel so inclined. By the way, fun fact, you don't actually need the eye from the pyramid to get through there. It's very much, you know, suggested that you do so, but if you know where you're going, you can just avoid it entirely. Just a funny little fact. And then we end up with the, the tendas. Now, I'm going to go ahead and admit something. By the time we hit the tendas, I was just like, okay... This is when my mind's kind of checked out mentally, and I stopped paying attention to the... The analytical part of my brain started to shut down a bit. This is true even when I first played this game, but especially this part of the game, because what do I say about this? So there's this tribe of people. They're basically dwarves. They live in this one section of the tropical rainforest, and they are shy. (laughs) You can see what I mean by drifting into the parody realm. I also have to admit something. Right around this point, actually before this point, you go back to Winters. You, again, you can do it at any time, but you really should do all of the other sites before you go into the underground because the fire cave is... I mean, it's, it's irritating as hell getting out of the fire cave and going back to the overworld. <clears throat> so, you go back to Winters and you go... Uh, because all the people are kidnapped, right? This is part of that whole thing. And the kidnapping is interesting because it doesn't actually add anything to the plot other than something incredibly crucial. If not for the kidnapping, Apple Kid and Andonuts would Andonuts Andonuts whatever would never actually have met and then started coordinating the way they do. 
Like, because, and this is another reason why I mentioned the whole type one time travel thing, aka everything, you know, was always going to happen in the same way. Because the idea here, thematically, is that Gygus and his minions, through their actions, effectively push the method of their own defeat onto the heroes. This is actually true in several points of the game, if I might be so bold. Because one of the major points of the game is the difference between a team and an individual. I'll come back to that point. So, we go save Andonuts, we go save Apple Kid, we go back through Winters. But I wanted to talk about that base, because that's where you get the Sword of Kings, but it's also where I stopped playing the game for a while. And for the longest time, I felt embarrassed by that. You know how it is, right? You're a guy. You're not supposed to be scared of things or freaked out by things. But I freaking was. When I first played that, granted, I was a teenager at this point, but when I first played through that base, the really weird pulsing lights and the horrifying music just kind of got to me. And I put the game down for a while. <sighs> it's funny to think of the things that used to get to me. <sighs> FF4 actually had an influence on me once with Dr. Lugay, believe it or not. Anyways, I wanted to bring that up, though, because for the longest time I thought it was just me because I was a pansy. I have since found out that basically every one of my friends who played the game back in the day had the exact same reaction at the exact same spot. Pax played it with the sound off when he first went through there, because it was the only way he could take it. It doesn't help that the enemies in there are actually pretty mean. I bring this up because I'm curious how many of you guys out there had a similar reaction. No shame. And again, I'm not expecting anyone. It's just I'm really curious. Anyways, all of that resolved... We head to the underworld. Okay. Dinosaurs. Sure. Whatever. I'm with it. Um, and we're going to go ahead and go... I, I mean, I completely skipped over the part where we go into the clouds in Delam. Or we go after the sewers. Because, again, the Your Sanctuary spots don't really matter. Except for being dungeons. Speaking of which, we go through the fire cave to do the final dungeon. And the moment you get the final Your spot, you go into Magicant. Now, I'm going to go and get back into theory crafting for a second here. One of the things I've always held as a theory, and this has only been reinforced after Mother 3 and talking to other people, is the idea that Magicant is more of a term rather than a name. Like, it's not a proper noun, in other words. It's like saying dreamscape. In other words, anybody can enter their own Magicant if, they, if the right circumstances exist. Now, obviously, it's a very rare thing to do, but you get the general gist of the idea. And again, to me, this feels like something that kind of was a byproduct of all of George's meddling back in the day. So we enter Ness's Magicant, where we're naked! Oh my god! Oh wait, no, this is the English version. We're not naked. Okay, we're cool, we're cool. It's okay. Being naked means purity in Japan. That's the whole point of that. There's a lot of interesting things in Magicant, since the whole point is for it to be a reflection on us, and the way we think, and the way we are. I'm going to tell a quick story here. So, back in the day, and honestly, I still have this this trend to this very day, I tend to un be underleveled. I don't like grinding, and I don't like running around in a circle for a while, so I just kind of got used to the idea of being low-level basically all the time. Now, normally I can make that work, either through skill or through good design of the game or whatever. The first time I ever played Earthbound ever, I got to Magicant, and I got so stuck there, I basically had to put the game down and start over. Because I was so stuck, I couldn't kill anything in the Magicant combat area, 
and that meant I couldn't level. I was effectively soft locked. And yeah, I know you could get courage. It 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 didn't help. <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> I still have bad memories of Magicant to this day about that. If you actually properly level, if you're like forty-ish, fifty-ish by the time you get there, it's it's not an issue. But uh, anyways, what I really want to talk about with regards to the Magicant thing is obviously it's a it's a dive into your own mind. But I want to talk about the connection with the your spaces and why I feel that's relevant. It is my opinion, foolish though it may sound, that each of the your spaces across the world was something that was crafted. In fact, I would go so far as to say in my theory crafting that George himself probably personally ran around and did this. If he didn't, Ninten probably did. The idea being each of these spots was designed to be, let's call it what it is, a ley line. Something that taps into the newly burgeoning PSI power that is now part of the Earth as a whole. So... This new power and this new influence has, is now being drawn to this local nexus spot, which causes issues, as is seen in basically all of them, but also allows one to activate certain parts of one's own potential that one otherwise wouldn't have. And of course, if one was to gain the power of all the ley lines simultaneously, they would be really strong, which is exactly what happens to Ness. In a wonderful bit of gameplay and story integration, after you gain the power of all the your sanctuary spots and come to peace with who and what you are, of course, after defeating the evil reflection of yourself, which takes the statue of Mani Mani's form, because that's what you have associated with evil. It's not actually the Mani Mani statue. I, I thought that for a while, but that's been disproven. You not only gain a bunch of stat-ups and a, a, a spell, but you also... There's this really cool feature, like, okay, imagine... This is your MP and this is your HP. I know they don't call it that. And so what happens is both start out really high. I think it's like a thousand spread across both. I'm not sure the exact number. Don't quote me on that. And what happens is it's slow, because of the scrolling thing, it slowly goes back and forth. And it will stop wherever you stop it at. Nowadays, I usually stop it pretty much right in the middle, which is like 400, 500 HP, 400 or 500 MP. Tons of a monopole. I know some players who will just take all the HP and not even bother to use his mana henceforth. I know some people take all the MP and turn them into a mana bank henceforth. I love how they give you that option to do it, though. It's a really cool feature, and it's a very cool part of the game. So, having done that, we're free you know, from Magicant. We, we leave Magicant, and we now have the power of all these your spots. And now we have the ability to face Gygas, but we just now we just have to find him. Where the heck could he be? I've, I've got it. Let's go talk to Andonuts, who's been working with Apple Kid and the Mr. Saturns. This is one of the weird parts of the game. The game, for all its silly ridiculousness, is carefully plotted in how events collide with each other to make sure things go in a specific way later on. So that when all, when all the pe when we need all the pieces to be in place, they are. You can see why I have a hard time calling this a pure parody game, because there is a logical plotline underneath this. Anyways, so they decide we need something that will enable them to time travel. Okay. Now, there could be a lot said about this, because we don't actually successfully time travel at first. But the thing I want to mention first is that when we go to time travel, what we need is the piece of the meteor that BuzzBuzz supposedly used to time travel. I say supposedly because I still don't believe that. I just point that out because it's an interesting parallel and probably designed by the game on purpose. Now, that being said, I have to destroy that theory right now because that's not actually what we use to time travel. 
That's what we use to dimensionally travel. The thing we use that BuzzBuzz used is the thing we use to dimensionally travel, not time travel. We need to take another step to time travel, which is actually, you know, to turn ourselves into the robot beings because we cannot actually be people and time travel, which further gives me credits for the fact that BuzzBuzz wasn't actually time traveling. That being said, obviously one person does time travel. Pokey! Ah! But you'll notice Pokey undergoes some pretty significant side effects from time traveling. The game doesn't really state it outright, but I believe this is what Dr. Andronauts was trying to prevent us from going through. All of the massive disabilities that Pokey ends up having happen to him over the course of this game and into the next one is as a consequence of his massive time travel his interaction with that and it basically debilitating and warping him until he's not even really a person anymore. <clears throat> So we go through the final cave, which sucks. God, I hate that dungeon so much. And then we go to the creepiest, most horrifying thing I've seen in a SNES game. And I've played Contra. We go through an undulating series of what look like semi-mechanical intestines leading up to a giant machine that opens up like it's an eyeball showing our face. That is to say, Ness's face. Oh, and Pokey's there. Hi, Pokey. Who is now looking a little worse for wear because he time-traveled. Yeah, um, what? <laughs> now, y'all know what happens. The final battle is one of the most famous parts of Earthbound, but I still want to talk about it briefly before I get into the theory crafting, because there's two really big things I want to praise about it. Point number one, other than the obvious horrifying elements of it, there's something amazingly awesome about how we defeat Gygus. And I, I don't mean the poison trick. What I mean is, I love... I've always liked the group bands together defeat singular, you know, the power of friendship trope. I always have. That being said, I'm also really picky about it. I prefer it to be done in a proper way, you know, as opposed to just being like, I'll, I've got friends, therefore I win, which doesn't actually work that way. Uh, probably my favorite example of the power of friendship trope is actually Final Fantasy VI, which is more about the connections between people. But the trope remains the same. It's the same core concept. We are together, united we stand, right? And that's exactly what happens at the finale of Earthbound. And it's an interesting direct contrast to Gygus and Pokey. Pokey, Porky, if you prefer, he only had one friend, us. And even that was just us tolerating him. And we were still always better than him, more popular. All the other people in school liked us. All the people here in town liked us better than him. Even his own family liked us better than him. Nobody liked Porky. And so he was truly alone. And he ends up... What I'm trying to say is that I feel like he would be a ripe target for the emanations of Gygus via the Mani Mani statue. I also have to admit, so there are many theories about the exact relationship between Pokey and Gygus in the end of the game. I'm going to go and give mine, because my big theory is that Pokey is, uh, I'd say, in charge at this point, but it's hard to use that word, that terminology, because... I mean, what is he in charge of exactly? I, I guess in charge of the alien invasion, acting as the main commander of Gygus, but he's the only one actually doing any anything. Because Gygus is gone at this point. There is no Gygus. There's just a entity that has been destroyed by its own power. Oh yeah, real quick. No, it's not a fetus. Let's, let's just make that really clear. Of all the theories I've heard, the one I like most is the turn it upside down theory. 
on the off chance you haven't heard that, Gygus's image turned upside down looks a hell of a lot like a distorted version of Geeg from the first game. Like, a lot like it. Anyways, <clears throat> so, we are not alone. <laughs> to, forgive me for quoting FF9. Unlike Pokey, who has no one, who is only existing by maintaining some kind of toxic connection between an eldritch horror that doesn't even really exist in the traditional sense anymore, we have each other, and more to the point, everyone else. Now, I'm not going to go into the time shenanigans here, but what I love is that we pray to all... And, and I'm, I know that sounds strange. I'm not a particularly religious person. But I've always said that praying doesn't actually have a religious kind of... Well, it doesn't necessarily mean something religious. You know what I mean? You don't have to be praying to a god. You can just pray, just please let something happen. God, just, you know, crossing your fingers. And that's how I've always kind of interpreted this. We pray, and all of a the sudden, they, th they think of Ness and his friends, and they, th they, oh my gosh, I just thought of Jeff. I hope he's okay. And he starts praying, and then, oh God, I just, I thought of Paula. Is she going to be all right? And he starts praying. And what happens is all of the people whose lives we've touched throughout the course of the game even some of our enemies, all reach out and just start praying for us. And the, the implication here is that thanks to our direct pipeline to the planet, thanks to the ley lines, those ley lines pump all of that energy and all of that... No, energy is the wrong word. Pump all of that sensation. Eh, it's still the wrong word. Let's just go with the core word, emotion. It pumps all of that emotion back to us because that's what destroys Gygus, just like the first time. Here's the thing. We don't all pray and then get a spirit beam and blast him in the face. What we do is we overwhelm him with emotions that he can no longer process. Gygus literally cessates as by virtue of not being able to cognate what is being done to it at that point in time. The very concepts of love and hope and connections are things that were alien to Geeg back in the first game. Remember? That's how we beat Geeg in the first game. Now that there's nothing left but this power with barely a mind attached, now it can't even begin to process it. It's like trying to flagrant... It doesn't work. So, Gygus effectively destroys itself by virtue of cessating or dissipating into cessation. This is, of course, when Pokey pieces out, and we'll see him later. And we end up getting drawn back into the same timeline. <laughs> but I, I haven't talked about the, this, this core point. And I know this is going to sound so cheesy and stupid, but I really like how they make it the name that you can put in. That you're supposed to put in your name for, you know, lore, praise, lore, praise, lore, praise. And then just bam, bam, bam. I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only kid who was actually like, oh, God, come on, as I sat there playing a video game on my living room floor, right? Tell me I wasn't the only kid doing that. I mean, I was a teenager by the time, but, you know, kid. Hell, I do that to this day. It was a very powerful moment, and it was probably one of the first times I'd ever seen that kind of meta take on a game as well. 
So that's another reason Earthbound stuck out for me. <laughs> now, I've already kind of talked about my theories regarding Pokey. Uh, how I think he is the one effectively in charge. How I think he was a prime target. So I didn't, didn't really describe this. In my mind, Pokey is the main character of the other side of the same video game. He levels up and goes on adventures and gets stronger and gets more powerful and gets more influential, but kind of the inverse of the way we do it. We do it by, you know, reaching out and fighting enemies and gathering people and having a party, right? He does it by basically becoming a, a form of both metaphorical and literal parasite to those around him, including the most obvious being Carpenter and Monodoly. And, of course, he eventually ends up becoming a parasite to, you know, Gygus himself, or itself at that point. That's my personal take on it. I've heard many other takes on it, and honestly, they're all pretty valid. They've never, Etoy's never sat down from on high and said, this is what happened. So, as always, I would be curious of hearing your takes on that. And I guess I've already given my take on Gygus, haven't I? That it used to be Geeg, and that he... His power, his PSI power grew and grew and grew beyond his ability to control it to the point where he had to be put into a special machine just to maintain any level of coherence. And that his mind and his being and his sense of self were utterly destroyed by nothing more than his own power. A true eldritch abomination. Can I just say I really love playable endings? They're not actually all that common. But I love this section. You can go to so much. You can go to basically everywhere in the entire game. There are very few places you can't go to. And almost every NPC in the game says something new to acknowledge the fact that you're in the ending state and you have beaten the game. The only exception of places you, you can't go is places that have been locked down or and you know, usually there's a sign or a person saying, no, you can't go there. Or when you can bug out the game. <laughs> by going back to the, the art museum. Yeah. You could have... It's, it's funny because it's also completely optional. The moment you do that, you could just be like, well, I'm going to warp off to Onet and then leave. And you could do that. Or you can go everywhere. I just really enjoy that. It is an awesome concept and it gives the player a sense of the journey they've gone through. And of course, then we have an awesome credit sequence. i got to have the stinger because we've got to set up Mother 3. And... I guess that's actually it, isn't it? If it's not obvious, I really like this game. As a curiosity point, how many of you noticed I didn't take any notes for this game? Like, my notepad has like three notes on it, and I stopped taking notes like in the first five minutes of the game. <laughs> this is only the second rumination I've ever done uh, in, in, since I started doing this professionally with no notes at all. Because I didn't need notes, because this is Earthbound. Because I love this game, and I know this game inside and out, and I really hope that I have done a good job in ruminating on this game that I just beat, with you, who just beat it. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it, guys. I'm looking forward to that stream. I'll see you next time. Fuzzy Pickles! <laughs>